The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Well, good evening. It's good to see you guys. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to the book of Ezra. We're actually going to be wrapping up our studies in this book tonight, so that's kind of exciting. And I am feeling chill tonight, so I'm just going to sit down with you all, if you don't mind. You know, in Jesus' day, the, the teachers would sit and the people would all stand, so maybe we can try that out. But t- tonight, at least, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be sitting. Um, no lying down tonight. At least I'm not planning on lying down. If you were here last week, my son was giving my wife the play-by-play. He's texting her, Dad's lying down again. The third time he's lying down. <laughs> Anyways. Um, I think God wants to speak to us tonight. He has a word for us, and that was powerful worship, and I'm excited to, to jump back into that in a few moments, but um, we're going to feast on the word tonight. And uh, if you recall, those of you who have been journeying with us through this book, you'll remember with me that it began some time ago with God calling a remnant of his people back to their homeland. And God puts it on the heart of this pagan king to allow the Israelites to return to their homeland. And so a group of about 50,000 of them make the journey from Babylon back to Israel. And once they get there, they set about this great task of restoring the temple and reestablishing the worship of God in that temple. And by the way, as we seek to make personal application to our own lives, this is where the work of God begins. It begins in the temple of our hearts as we take what the enemy has tried to destroy and we build into and sow into the work that God wants to do in us. And, And it starts in us. It starts in our own hearts. And so that's what the people did. And they completed that task. And you would have thought that that's where the book should have ended, with great celebration. A party is thrown. The temple gets dedicated. And they all lived happily ever after. They rode off into the sunset, that kind of thing. That would have been wonderful. But but it's not how the story ends. You see, something was amiss. Sin had crept into the camp. And because of that, This sin, if left untreated, threatens to undo every good thing that God had done. So what did the people do? Well, the first couple of verses of chapter 9 tell us. It says, after these things, so that encompasses a whole lot there. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate Take special note of that word separate. They haven't kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Flashlights, the Moabites, the Egyptians, the Amorites, all of them. And they've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and they've mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. So the first thing to notice here is that there are this 
delegation, this group of godly men who come to Ezra as the leader of the people, and they point out the sin of the people. That's worth noting. They didn't just sweep it under the rug. They didn't just try to ignore it. They didn't just hope that it would go away on its own. But they address this sin issue in the camp, and they address it head on. So what was the basis of their accusation? Well, it was a serious one. Evidently, according to verse 2, there were several people, including some of the leaders, who had failed to keep themselves separate. That's that word that I'm calling you back to. They'd failed to keep themselves separate from the neighboring peoples, as the Lord had commanded them to do. The word talks about how they were mingling together with them. They were intermarrying with these people groups. They were giving their sons in marriage to them and their daughters. And so you say, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, I'll tell you. You see, these surrounding nations, they were godless. They didn't serve the Lord or follow the Lord or know the Lord. And thus, when the people of God began to intermarry with them, they were entering into covenants with them. And so they were being brought into the camp and they were bringing with them all of their idolatrous practices, godless practices, abominable, detestable practices is the word that was used to describe what they were bringing into the people of God. And so this was something that God had clearly forbidden in his word. By the way, let this be a word of warning for our single people in here tonight. This is why God calls us to be equally yoked, to only date and thus marry Christian brothers and sisters. Why? Well, he's clear that when we, when we date and then ultimately marry people who are outsiders, unbelievers, that they'll ultimately pull our hearts away from the Lord. And that's always the great danger. And that's exactly what we see happening here. Contrary to the warning that God had clearly given to his people. And I want to read this to you. It's a, it's a long text. But this is the word that God has spoken through Moses to his people long before Ezra or any of this took place. And he said, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to possess, and he drives out many nations before you, the Hittites, and he goes through the list. We already read them. Seven nations, more numerous and powerful than you. So when God brings you in, and when the Lord God delivers them over to you, and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them. He goes on. He says, make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. You must not, listen, you must not intermarry with them. And you must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will swiftly destroy you. Instead, this is what you are to do to them. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their carved images. For why? You are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all of the peoples on the face of the earth. Now, I want to point something out. God's command to keep separate from the surrounding nations, it wasn't about elitism. It wasn't about racism. His concern, as it, these verses point out, was for the purity of his people. 
And he knew that if he, they began to intermarry with them and enter into covenant with them, because that's what marriage is, that they would ultimately be led away to worship other gods. And that's why he said, you need to separate yourselves from these people. He went on and he reminded them that they were to be a holy people unto the Lord their God. Holy. That's what we've been called to be as God's people, set apart. It's, it's, it's from the very beginning that God has called his people to come out and be different. God said to Abraham, get out of your country and away from your people and go to a land that I will show you. And he constantly calls his people out. In fact, when you look at the etymology of that word holy, in its roots, you will find the, the foundation of this word separateness. That's essentially what the word holiness is all about. It means to separate. So the concept of holiness involves this idea of separating ourselves from things that would defile us or make us unclean. Now, ultimately, God's purpose in wanting his people to be separate was so that there might be a marked line of distinction between the people of God and the peoples of the surrounding nations so that they could shine as lights and show the world that God's way is better. You see, this is God's ultimate plan for his people. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord said this, I will also, and this is him talking to the Israelites, he said, I'm going to make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. That's Isaiah 49, 6. God's plan for his people, that they would be a light. And you can't be a light if you're hiding with the darkness. See, God wanted them to see the Israelites as something different and be drawn to them because of the light shining from them. But God's people failed to remain separate. And this is a good point for us as believers to be reminded of that as Christians, we too have been called by God to step out of this world and to separate ourselves from it. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about not allowing ourselves to be conformed to the pattern of this world. You know what I mean by that. There is the way the world thinks, and there is a pattern of thought. There is a pattern of behavior. There is a, there is a way of doing things. And, and God says, don't be conformed to this worldly pattern. I love the way Weiss Bible translation puts it. It says, don't allow the world to squeeze you into its molds. Similarly, in Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, he said this, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. So again, God's will for us that we would be separate from the world. Unfortunately, you know as well as I do that oftentimes this isn't how it is. And many times, you can go into churches, and there's no difference in the church from the world outside the church. You, there are a lot of Christians that, how there are a lot of Christians out there who, the lines between them and the world have been blurred. And sometimes it's with the best of intentions. People in churches think, you know, in order to win the world, we need to become like the world. And if we can show them how much like them we are, then they'll want to join us, which is just, Totally backwards thinking. Every time God's people try to win the world by becoming like the world, that plan always backfires. Jesus said it like this. He said, 
What good is salt that has lost its saltiness? It's not good for anything. It serves no purpose, except maybe to be thrown on paths, to be trampled underfoot, Matthew 5.13. But then there are some of you that are sitting out there and you're thinking to yourselves, okay, well, I get it. We're called to, to be separate, to be different. But, but didn't Jesus say that we're to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations. So how do we reconcile these two things? On the one hand, the Bible calls us to go into the world. And then in other verses, the Bible is telling us to separate ourselves from the world. So what are we supposed to do about that? Well, I think Jesus gives us the answer always. Somebody say amen. But Jesus talked about how as Christians, we're to be in the world without being of the world. This is our calling. We're in the world without being of the world. Now, I understand that that sounds a little cryptic, right? Like little Yoda-esque. Mm, of the world, not, but in the world, yes, <laughs> you know. So what is Jesus talking about when he says that we're to be in the world but not of it? Well, perhaps it would be helpful to, to think of it using an illustration. Think about a boat. I love this illustration. A boat is designed to live in the water. A boat on land won't do you much good. Boats are designed specifically to function in the water. You can have a lot of fun in a boat when it's on the water, in the water. So a boat in the water is a good thing. But water in a boat, that's a bad thing. If you're sailing or if you're on a boat and suddenly there's a lot of water in that boat, you better you know, get rid of the water because it's not supposed to be there. And that's how it works for us. You see, as Christians, we can make a big difference when we're in the world but unstained by the world. It's when the world starts to get into us and we become worldly, that's when we have problems. And the problem with Israel is that they had started to let water into the boat. The people were being drawn away from worshiping the Lord. And so the leaders came to Ezra and they addressed this problem head on. So kudos to them. But perhaps you caught this at the end of verse two. It says that many of the leaders were leading the way in this unfaithfulness. And I find that to be so sad. And by the way, let this be a word of warning for those of you who aspire to positions of leadership or perhaps you're in a position of leadership. The Bible tells us that leaders are held to a higher standard. And it tells us that leaders will face the, the higher judging and will give an account on that final day and we have a higher standard. Why is that? Because when the leader goes off track, they tend to take a lot of people with them. Perhaps you're familiar with the saying that goes like this, as go the leaders, so goes the church, right? The family, the home, the community. As go the leaders, so goes the church. It's true. The overall health of any church or ministry depends primarily on the spiritual health of its leadership. So by the way, pray for your leaders. Amen. Pray for your spiritual leaders. Pray for your pastors because the enemy wants to take us out. And also be careful that as you lead others, and by the way, we're all leaders because leadership is influence. If you influence one person, you're a leader. So we're all leaders here. And be careful where you're leading people. And be careful that you're pointing people towards God and not leading them away from him. These leaders weren't doing a good job. And, and so when I heard this, verse 3, 
Ezra says, I tore my tunic and cloak and pulled the hair from my head and beard, and I sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Let's just notice for a moment how extreme his response is to receiving this news. When he hears about the sin in the camp, he tears his clothing. He rips the beard from his face. He pulls out the hair from his head. I mean, it's, it's kind of extreme. <laughs> Will you agree with me on that? He, quite, he caused quite a scene. In fact, people started to gather around him. And I love the kind of crowd that Ezra attracted. He attracted the kind of crowd that trembled at the word of the God of Israel. Man, I want to traffic with people who tremble at the word of God. And so all the people who trembled at the word of God, they gathered around Ezra. And together, they sat there in silence all day, just mourning the sin. And I was thinking about this and examining this picture. And it, it really caused me to self-reflect. And I was trying to think back to the last time that I was in such a state over my own sin. When was the last time that I broke down in tears? When's the last time that I cried out? And, and there have been times, believe you me, there have been times. But I don't know that I've ever taken things to this level. I mean, he didn't just cry out. He's ripping his clothes. It's very demonstrative. And so I'm thinking about all of this. And then I realize something. Ezra's not just this torn up over his own sin. He's this torn up over the sins of people that he doesn't even know. He hadn't personally done anything wrong. And he didn't personally know probably most of the people that were guilty of these sins. But it still broke his heart. Wow. This, friends, is what it looks like to have the heart of your heavenly father. You see, there are a number of examples in scripture where we see the prophets weeping and lamenting over the sins of the nation of Israel. And would to God that we would follow their lead in this way. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, just tears streaming down our face. God, give us this heart, the heart of Jesus, who when he rode on the back of that donkey on Palm Sunday. And we always celebrate the first part where he's going down on the back of the donkey and they're singing Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But do you recall how at one point he stopped and he looked out over the city of Jerusalem and tears began to flow down his cheeks as he said, would that you, even you, had known on this thy day the things that make for your peace. He wept over the city. And we need to ask God to give us a heart like that. A heart that breaks at the things that break his heart. A heart that grieves for the lost. A heart that weeps for prodigal sons and daughters. A heart that mourns over the sins of the nation. I am ashamed to admit to you tonight that far too often I allow myself to become blasé about the sin in this country instead of being appalled by it. I don't think I'm alone. There's just there's something about society that numbs us to the reality of sin, the weightiness of sin. And, and, and it just desensitizes us towards sin. It ought to break our hearts. And I, that's why I love this text that we're looking at tonight. And yeah, I know it's a heavy one, but it's a good one. 
We need to be touched by these things. And Ezra demonstrates a proper biblical godly response towards sin. It ought to break us. We don't want to minimize it, justify it, or ignore it. We don't want to be unaffected by it. We need to be broken by it. And then we can't stay there. It's not enough to just be sad. Ezra goes on in verse 5 tells us, then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement. So that's good. And then with my tunic and cloak torn, I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. So he rises after sitting in silence, just weeping all day. And he rises only to fall back down to his knees. And he prays this powerful prayer of confession. And we don't have time to go through the whole prayer tonight, but there are a couple of things that I want to point out about it. If you look at verse 6, he starts by saying, I'm too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached up to the heavens. Notice where he begins. He prays again as if the problem is his own. He identifies with the people in their sin, even though he's not personally guilty. And by the way, this is what godly leaders do. Leaders lead the way. And one of the ways we lead is in the way of repentance. Ezra was a godly leader, and so he starts there, and he, and he goes on to rehearse the sins of the people. In verses 8 and 9, he talks about God's mercy and his goodness. Then in verses 10 through 12, he confesses more of Israel's sins. But then in verses 13 through 15, he throws himself on the grace of God, and he concludes his prayer in verse 15 like this. Lord God of Israel, you're righteous. We're left this day as a remnant. And here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. So it's kind of interesting because the prayer doesn't resolve. It doesn't kind of tie itself off in a nice bow. He just kind of once again finds himself down at the Lord's feet. He's confessing his sins before God. And this, friends, is what repentance looks like. Now, we know that repentance is one of those words that it feels like, I don't know, like it's one of those words that de developed a negative connotation in the church. We almost treat it like it's a dirty word, like it's a four-letter word. But it's not. We need to redeem the idea of repentance. And here's why. Repentance is beautiful. It's foundational for the Christian life. It's how we grow in grace and forgiveness. And it's what opens the door to joy and thanksgiving and restored relationship. You see, without repentance, there can be no forgiveness. Martin Luther understood this. He was that great Protestant reformer. And you might recall this famous story of how he launched the Protestant Reformation by taking these 95 theses. And he took them to the door of the church there in Wittenberg, Germany. And he nailed the 95 theses to the door. And you want to know what the first one said? It said this, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the entire life of believers ought to be one of repentance. Is he saying that we're supposed to go around and just self-loathing and, and just this, oh, I'm so terrible kind of thing all the time? No. No, that's not what it is at all. He's saying that repentance is the key because it's the way that Christians make all forward progress in their Christian life. And I'm inclined to agree with him. So we need to grow in this practice of repentance. So here, there, here, I want to give you the ABCs of repentance, OK? Uh, you know how the ABCs work. It's like the foundational 
model of learning. And without your ABCs, you're not going to get very far in history or math or English or any other subjects. You've got to master the ABCs. Well, here are the ABCs of repentance. Number one, A, admit. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you are wrong. Admit that you're not perfect. This should be easy for all of us. And what is sin? Well, sin is not doing the things that I should be doing, and it's doing the things that I shouldn't be doing. In the Greek thought, sin meant to miss the mark. So you're an archer. You pull back your arrow and bow, and you let it fly. If you miss the bullseye, and the bullseye, by the way, is perfection. <laughs> if you miss the bullseye, then you have sin. You have missed the mark. And we need to admit where we are wrong. And, and that's what I love about this chapter. They admit their sin specifically. And that's where repentance starts, with admitting that we've missed the mark. The B in the ABCs of repentance stands for believe. So we admit that we're wrong, then we believe. We believe what? Well, we believe that what God says about our sin is true. You say, of course we believe that. Well, no, you don't. You actually believe a lie. Otherwise, you wouldn't have sinned in the first place. We believe that God's holding out on us. We believe that this is going to give us more pleasure than what God says. And so we, we think that God's a liar and we believe the lie of Satan. This is the model from the beginning. Satan's whole tactic with Adam and Eve in the garden was to get them to believe a lie about God. God's holding out on you. So they believe the lie. And repentance, then, is rejecting Satan's lies and aligning ourselves with God's truth and saying, God, what you say about my sin, I align myself with that narrative. And that leads us to the C in the ABCs of repentance. The C stands for confession. Confession. We admit that we're wrong. We believe what God says about our sin. And then we confess our sins. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth, it's not in us. But if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just and will forgive us, um, purify us from all unrighteousness. If you think about it in a way, confession does for the soul what preparing the land does for a field. Before the farmer can go and sow the seed, he has to tear up the dirt. He has to remove the rocks and the stumps and so on and so forth so that the seed can better grow and germinate and propagate. And confession is that act of inviting God to walk the fields and the acreage of our hearts so that we can then grow in grace. It opens the door for grace and healing in life. These are the three parts of Repentance, But there's one more critical element to biblical repentance that our text models and deals with, and it's action. We need to act. It's not just changing our minds, but it's a change of mind that leads to a change in the way we live. Confession is great, and prayer is important, but those things in and of themselves are not enough, okay? Simply to express remorse or even to change our mind about something isn't enough. If our repentance doesn't lead to change, real change, change in our direction, then it's not repentance. You see, the, the word repent, the Hebrew word for repent, it literally means to turn back or to return. So this is the idea, right? If you're driving this way, you make a U-turn, you start going this way. And that's what the Israelites did. And, and we're going to touch on this in chapter 10. And I'll just warn you, this is kind of gnarly. 
But this is how the book ends. While Ezra was praying and confessing and weeping and throwing himself down, this is chapter 10, verse 1. He's doing all these things before the house of God. A large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him, and they too wept bitterly. Then Shekinah, Shekinah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there's still hope for Israel. Let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under an oath to do what had been suggested. This is, like I said, this is, this is gnarly. A hard episode to read. I can only imagine how hard this must have been for those, those men in the camp who had to go back to their homes and separate themselves from their wives and from their children and send them out. In fact, later on in the chapter, you can read it for yourself, but there is a list of 110 names Men who followed these orders that this applied to. You say, well, what do you, what do you say about that, preacher? I mean, not a whole lot. I can tell you this, sin is horrible. This is the effect that sin has. Sin brings death. Sin brings pain. Sin destroys literally everything that it touches. It destroys families. It destroys homes. It destroys lives. Sin is ugly, which is why we need to learn how to deal radically with it. Can't play around with it. We need to cut it out of our lives. The, the language that the New Testament uses to, to wrap around this concept is it says, put it away. Put your sin away. Put off the old man. Send it packing. Now, these guys had to do that in the most literal way as they watched their children and these women go out from the camp. Tears flowed, I'm sure. For us, it's probably more spiritual in nature, a cutting off of sinful attitudes, relationships, habits, and behaviors. But at the end of the day, as we consider this passage of scripture and, and what it speaks to us, I think what we get here is a powerful picture of how radical we need to be with regards to our sin. Like the Israelites, we need to learn how to deal with it head on, like they did, repent, like they did, and then put it away. We need to strive for the attitude of the psalmist who wrote this in Psalm 103. My song is about loyalty and justice. What a great song. My song is about loyalty and justice, and I sing it to you, O Lord. My conduct will be faultless. When you come to me, I will live with a pure life in my house. And listen, I will never tolerate evil. I hate the actions of those who turn away from God. I'll have nothing to do with them. And the thing I want you to note from the scripture, and we'll end here, is that he says, in my house, I'm not going to tolerate evil. Usually tolerance is considered a praiseworthy attribute. It's a virtue in most circles. We celebrate tolerance, and for good reason. We should respect differing opinions and try to understand them. But we can't always give our unqualified, unconditional support to every belief and behavior out there. And here's why. Because God doesn't, right? There are things that we should refuse to tolerate. 
And I think, again, part of what it looks like to grow in our faith, to grow in Christ, means learning how to love the things he loves and learning how to not tolerate the things that he refuses to tolerate. It was uh, the great Puritan preacher, John Owens, who in his famous book, The Mortification of Sin, who writes a book and titles it The Mortification of Sin? Preachers read books like that. But anyways, he had this great line in that book. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Guys, this is a heavy topic, right? I get it. But I'm just here preaching the word. This is the text we're in. And so this is something that God's wanting to do. It's something that God's wanting to speak. And we need to have ears to hear. We need to have hearts that are soft and responsive. We need to be killing our sin. We need to put it out of our lives. We need to stop tolerating it. And so I want to leave you with a question. Is there sin in your camp that you have been tolerating, that God is calling you to put away? Tonight, let's deal with that sin. The good news is that we serve a great God. You see, Ezra ripped out his own beard, but Jesus had the beard from his face ripped out by Roman soldiers. Ezra ripped his own tunic. Jesus, he was lifted up on a cross and he was shamed for the sins of the world. He took your place and he took mine so that we might have the righteousness of God. Jesus became what we deserve. He took the chastisement of our peace, the Bible says, so that we could then don his righteous robes. And what we need to understand is that the sin that we tolerate in our lives, it has this effect. It breaks our connection to him so that we're only allowed to get as close to him as we remove the sin in our lives. God says, listen, my ears aren't heavy that they can't hear and my arm isn't short that it can't save, but your sins have separated me from you so that I will not hear. This is heavy stuff, so we need to come to Jesus. We need to confess our sins. We need to repent of it. We need to forsake it. And when you do that, you'll find times of refreshing coming from the presence of the Lord, because our God loves to forgive. He forgives, he forgives, he forgives. He never grows tired of it. And friends, I love saying this because it's true, but there is always more grace in God than there is sin in us. So let it go. What are you holding on to your sin for? What has it brought you? Give it to the Lord. Let's do that tonight. I'm going to ask the worship team to come out. And we're going to enter into a time of worship. As always, I want to invite you to make your way to the front here. This is kind of our makeshift altar, if you will. You can do business with God. You can open the communion elements that we've provided you with. And you can go to the table. And you can taste and see that God is good. The scriptures tell us to taste and see that God is good. And when we taste the bread, and when we drink the cup and we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, it has this purifying, cleansing, renewing, washing effect on us. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for the cross. We thank you for the new life. We thank you that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's a conditional promise. That's an if 
promise. If we, then you. We confess, you forgive. So Father, give us the grace to confess, the grace to repent. You might need to do some soul searching tonight. You might need to get on your knees in the presence of God. Let me just encourage you. You do what you need to do because your sin is keeping you from God's best. There is a destiny that God is calling you into as his child, as his son, as his daughter. He's bringing you into deeper waters. He was wanting to draw you into new places in your relationship with him. But he's saying, before I bring you there, we've got to deal with this. This is getting in the way, and you know what your this is. For them, it was a very specific thing, and it will be a specific thing for you. God is laying that thing on your heart right now, and you confess that to him. You say, Jesus, forgive me. You say, Jesus, I need you. I don't have the power to beat this thing in and of myself. My strength isn't sufficient. But I thank you that when I come to the end of me, I haven't even begun to exhaust the eternal riches of your grace. A gnat might sooner drink the entire Pacific Ocean then you will be able to exhaust the love of God for you. His love for you is boundless. It's deeper than the deepest oceans. It's higher than the highest heavens. It's wider than this entire world. God loves you with an everlasting love. From eternity past into the eternal future, God says, I love you. And he put a stake in the ground. And Jesus hung on a cross. And if you've ever wrestled with or questioned or doubted whether or not God loves you, the eternal exclamation point of the cross says, this is how you know that I love you. In this, God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we celebrate that tonight, Jesus. We celebrate your love. We worship you in spirit and in truth. We're broken, but in brokenness, there is healing. There is beauty. There is wholeness. There is life. For the broken vessel is the cherished vessel. The broken and the contrite spirit, you will in no way cast out, Jesus. The bruised reed, you won't break. The smoking flax, you won't quench. You're a God who heals and restores and renews. And we love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We worship you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.